Welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements. As always, this is Adam White with my friend Richard Epstein. Richard, remind me, have we mentioned the Mueller investigation on this podcast? Um, I seem to recall that it came up interstitially on one or another occasions, yes. I think, yeah, I think we may have mentioned it once or twice, and as it happens, it's in the news again this week. Uh, in recent days, we're taping this in mid-May, um, and just a few days ago, uh, there was a major move in district court. The U.S. Department of Justice moved to dismiss its case against Michael Flynn. It turns out this sparked a little controversy. Uh, judge Sullivan has brought in an amicus, a retired judge, to argue against the motion. This raises a lot of interesting questions about prosecutorial discretion, the role of the judge. But let's, before we get to any of that, start with the basic question. What are your thoughts on the state? of the Flynn investigation and the revelations about the views of the investigators as they were questioning Mr. Flynn uh, and building a case against him. Well, as you know, I've always been deeply skeptical of the Mueller investigation, and on multiple occasions on this show, I've sort of explained why. The first reaction I have is the one that I have with respect to every investigation. If the only thing that you can turn up is a violation of some duty of candor with respect to the FBI, which is unrelated to any misconduct with respect to the underlying acts, I'm very suspicious about going forward on those grounds. It seems to me that there's just too much of a risk that the FBI can play somebody in one of these circumstances. And so therefore, I'm comfortable only with cases in which you find something about the underlying thing that went wrong. And that's where I think the trouble begins. As one knows, the sort of the grounds for the investigation that was floated inside the um, Obama administration and the Justice Department in the transition period between the uh, election in 2016 and the takeover of office by Trump in 2017 had to do with the Logan Act. And the Logan Act is this odd statute uh, passed in 1799 in order to punish Mr. George Logan, who had evidently got himself involved in some negotiations with France at the in the middle of the Adams administration. It's very, very broad. It has never been used as a an action for actual impeachment. It's been violated routinely by ordinary people who always are sort of speculating and trying to talk the foreign diplomats to gain influence. And in this particular case, the idea that would apply against Flynn, who was a nominee uh, designate, actually not even a nominee, a designate for an office afterwards to speak to this Krisloff fellow, uh, struck me as being bizarre. And so when you start having bizarre examinations and this kind of thing, uh, it doesn't pass the smell test. Then uh, when you actually go to the investigation that took place, I guess it was three or four days inside the um, uh, after Trump had been been put into office. Uh, one of the people there was Peter Strotz, who was himself uh, basically removed from the investigation later on by Mueller, at which point my view is all of his work product, including this phone call, had to be taken out as well. Uh, uh, we don't know whether there was entrapment or not. Uh, we don't even know whether or not there was a lie or not. It's all quite ambiguous in some form. Uh, the investigators, including Strauss at the time, seemed to think that it should be let lie. And then when Mueller wants to uh, sort of gin up some activity, uh, what he does in November of 2017 is he starts to go after Flynn on this, and he extracts a settlement of one count, I guess, for lying to the FBI. This cost Flynn, I think he spent about $4 million in his legal fees throughout this entire uh, fiasco. 
Uh, he was charged on that particular count and only on that particular count, pled guilty to it. It is said, uh, can't verify, but said on multiple sources uh, that he did so in part because he wanted to shield his son from an investigation by Mueller. Uh, and this is, again, the standard problem of coercion. States got monopoly power. It brings a collateral target in. If there is certainly no independent grounds to think that the son was active, it's a form of serious prosecutorial abuse. We don't know the underlying facts behind Mueller, so we have to at least temper our judgment. Uh, but what happens is, I think uh, uh, what Barr did is he got some man from Jensen, I think was his name, to run an independent investigation. And he said, look, um, he did confess, indeed he confessed twice, uh, but we think that the overall circumstances uh, by which this thing was brought about was su indicated sufficient levels of prosecutorial misuse under these things that uh, we wanted to set it aside. And I guess my position is I agreed with him under these circumstances, notwithstanding the ferocious attack uh, that was placed against Flynn and Trun and Barr under these circumstances. Uh, I think the real difficulties associated with the, uh, the October and November uh, behavior in 2016 before the election is in what the Democrats tried to do in order to spur the use of the Steele dossier and so forth. And I regard this as a diversion to try to push things in the other way. So I was very unhappy about this. Uh, I think we should talk, and I want to know what your views are, about the question of not only allowing people to send in comments to Judge Sullivan, but him appointing somebody on the other side as an official representative. Uh, I could see why, but I'm not sure it's correct. Uh, what's going on here is there's an agreement between Flynn and the DOJ. It's hard for them to, to give a, shall we say, adverse positions on this. I take it that the consent requirement that's built into the federal code of criminal procedure is a real one, at which particular point uh, the procedural options seem to me to fall largely in uncharted territory. Anyhow, what are your views? Well, the investigation itself, you know, we, we did go around and around on these issues so many times in the podcast. And, and as I said a few times, um, especially when the investigation ended, you know, uh, the investigation ended up producing a lot less, uh, you know, negative information uh, or culpable information of culpable conduct by the Trump administration or President Trump than I expected. I thought that the investigations were warranted um, when they began, given so much of the sort of the, the fog surrounding the election. And I certainly included General Flynn in that, right? His dealings with with um, his, his, his appearance alongside Vladimir Putin at a dinner just a couple of years ago, you know, alongside President Trump's sort of strange public comments inviting Russia to hack into servers and and or to, to get Hillary's emails um, and all the sort of strangeness surrounding the Trump campaign. I certainly thought the investigation was warranted, but then there was the investigation and it produced much less than I expected to find. I'll say these latest revelations are, I think, pretty disturbing. I think there's been great, great reporting on this by Eli Lake of, of Bloomberg and commentary and, and elsewhere. Um, the notes from the investigators asking themselves whether their uh, their goal was to, uh, in part, to, to, to get Flynn to, to commit perjury um, so that they could leverage against him. I've always been wary of perjury traps in highly politicized investigations. And so I, I think there are real problems here, and I don't think it's unreasonable for the Justice Department to reconsider this and even to um, unwind this, notwithstanding the fact that Flynn pled guilty. Um, when this story came out, 
I went to where all great thoughts happen. Of course, I went on Twitter and I just pointed out that that um, the the fact that Flynn pled guilty that doesn't mean he was in fact guilty of culpable conduct. And I pointed people to a widely read and discussed New York Review of Books essay from a few years ago by Judge Jed Rakoff. It was in 2014. It was called Why Innocent People Plead Guilty. And Rakoff in that essay and others was, as a district judge, these were really extraordinary essays, criticizing the state of prosecution, um, both in terms of under-prosecution and over-prosecution. And in this essay on why innocent people plead guilty, he gets to the point that you made about the immense power of prosecutors to leverage, the the power that they can leverage to force the hand of people that come within their crosshairs. Um, Now, on that question, though, of Barr's actual actions here, like I said, I don't think it was unreasonable for him to do this. But I'm not saying it was an obvious decision. It's obviously correct decision either. The Justice Department intervening in this case with one of President Trump's associates, much like they they intervene, intervened earlier with, um, um, oh, what's his name? <laughs> his political advisor, um, uh, Roger Stone. Roger Stone. Oh, yeah. Roger Stone. Um, heard of him. Uh, this, watching the Justice Department sort of move in on these particular issues, it really, really does worry me. Um, I think that Barr, who, by the way, I'm much more favorable towards Barr than a lot of my fellow Never Trump friends are. Um, I think in many ways his goal in rejoining the Justice Department was to get the Justice Department out of the politicized environment it's been in the last few years. I think that here, uh, Attorney General Barr, while he may have been trying to undo a politicized prosecution that didn't have turned out didn't have merit, he needless to say has has turned up a lot of political um, angst around the Justice Department. It doesn't look good, and it takes a lot of explanation on why it is a good thing, explanation that hasn't been forthcoming yet. I mean, do we really want a a Justice Department that can just come in and unilaterally unwind prosecutions um, of of the president's friends? Um, Obviously, prosecutors have a lot of power to uh, to bring or not bring cases. I wrote. I think the last piece I wrote for the Weekly Standard a couple of years ago was in part on this issue. Um, this is one of the most delicate and dangerous powers of all in our constitutional government: prosecutorial discretion. Do we really want the Justice Department to unwind prosecutions of the president's friends? I'm going to answer that halfway. First of okay. all, we did disagree, at least on one thing. I always thought that the Mueller investigation was a bust uh, from start to finish, as you know. And I feel mildly vindicated that after 674 days, they came up with very, very little on the underlying offense and then put out that firestorm about the obstruction question. I agree with you that it is extremely dangerous to allow for collusive behavior between a prosecutor who is inclined to favor a particular defendant after there's been a change of administration uh, to unilaterally call the whole thing off. Um, I think he still has that power to call it off in the sense that he won't continue to prosecute, uh, but that's not the same thing that was sought before Judge Sullivan, namely the power to dismiss this case with prejudice. So I think the Code of Criminal Procedure, which was actually modified so as to require the consent for the judge, is in fact a perfectly sensible safeguard against this kind of behavior. Whenever there is collusion between the particular 
particular parties or a possibility of advantage taking, that seems to be appropriate. So in class actions, for example, if there's going to be some kind of a settlement between the plaintiffs and the defendants, there's always an elaborate reasonableness hearing before the trial judge to see whether or not this is a covert deal between the plaintiffs, uh, lawyers on the one hand and the defendants on the other to sell the class out cheap, or whether or not it's an honest resolution of a particular dispute. Uh, both of these characterizations have merits in some cases, and the fact that the judge oversees these things is, I think, a very good idea. And in fact, in the many cases of this sort that I've read, I'm very pleased to see the level of seriousness with which judges take this job. Uh, whether or not what you want to do to appoint a, an advocate, I mean, my view about this is I think Judge uh, Sullivan made a mistake. I think he appointed a judge who had already publicly committed himself to being critical of what had happened. In general, I would rather have an independent person of genuine expertise who was uninvolved with this thing, who was prepared to make as a lawyer the best possible case. Uh, you recall that we had a strong disagreement between us as to whether or not Rod Rosenstein should appoint uh, Mueller at all, given that he was buddies to some extent with both Mueller, uh, Rosenstein, and Comey were a triad. And I still think that that point was correct. So I think he should do this. I think anybody who wants to file anything with the court under these circumstances should certainly be entitled to do so, and the judge is entitled to take it into account. And I don't think it's inappropriate to appoint somebody else. The Wall Street Journal was very indignant about how this seemed to uh, deal with a violation of separate of powers. I, I frankly don't see that objection as being particularly important. It's not the executive branch that you're trying to talk to. Uh, you're trying to figure out how you discharge your judicial functions when you think there's danger of collusion. So I have no doubt about the uh, sense of this. I think the individual appointment was wrong. And uh, my hope is that they will get this thing done quickly. Uh, to me, uh, the next question is, which way do the burdens go? And given the fact, I think, that this is a particularly detailed report with some powerful allegations, I think the burden is going to go on those people who want to upset it. I was struck, and I'll just end on this point, is that when I read some of the articles early on that denounced uh, what was going on, they were all done at a very high level of generality. Uh, the interesting thing about the application is it was done at a very high level of specificity. And by and large, when you see statements such as the one that you mentioned. Is this a perjury trap? Or are we really doing this to get to the truth? You find out that even people like Sally um, Yates are upset about this kind of thing. I think the burden then switches to those who want to explain why it is that this thing ought to be set aside. And I take it, Adam, I want to know your views. Even if they set this aside, I don't think they could still force the prosecution to go ahead, although in the next administration, particularly if it should switch from uh, Trump to the Democrats, uh, I assume they would be able to revive the case. Is that your view, too, or am I missing something? Well, I wonder if that might be the issue. I saw some idle speculation on the Internet that one of the reasons why, or, or one possibility of what's happening here is that Judge Sullivan will, will try to stretch things out long enough to get this to the next administration, um, or at least get it to the election and, and see if there's a change in administration. I agree with you that you can't force a Justice Department to move forward with the prosecution or a sentencing and so on that it, it doesn't want to go forward with. But as you said, if the judge refuses to consent to this dismissal, um, institutionally it'd be interesting to see what the Justice Department does. I think it would be a sort of a, 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 a real escalation of um, the, the political and, and legal stakes of the Justice Department were to say, you know, the, the judge has made his ruling, now let him enforce it. We're not going to. Um, 
You know, I, I, I was talking earlier from the perspective of being wary of this prosecutorial discretion, and I really am. I, I, I think that it's one thing for the president. I, I think it's one perhaps ideal for the president to go in this context easier on his enemies than on his friends. Right. Rather than the reverse. I agree. Um, and, and that um, we may see this if there is a change in administrations, um, see uh, the, the a Biden administration and a Biden, Biden Justice Department, you know, punishing its enemies, investigating President Trump uh, and, and so on. So I'm very wary of, of this dynamic. I'm wary of the prosecutorial discretion. On the other hand, we elect pre- presidents for a variety of reasons, and this is one of them, for the, all the reasons that Justice Scalia explained in his famous dissent in Morrison v. Olson, right? The, the, the notion of presidents having unlimited power over the execution of, of laws, including prosecution, mm-hmm. um, maybe that's unappealing, but it's, less, it's, it's more appealing than the alternative, which is to break up the prosecutorial power into a bunch of unaccountable places. Um, I, I will point out to our listeners that, you know, in the middle of all the, the COVID-19 chaos last month, we passed the 80th anniversary of Robert Jackson's famous speech, you know, the most famous speech on prosecution um, titled The Federal Prosecutor, back when Justice Jackson was still Attorney General Jackson. I think it's worthwhile going back and rereading that speech and thinking about it these days mm-hmm. in the context of what we're talking about. On, on Judge Sullivan, um, I, I'm, I'm, I might be closer to the Wall Street Journal position than to your position on appointing an amicus. I suppose on the one hand, when the government abandons its position, it's good to have another voice there for the sake of um, uh, for the sake of of just the checks and balances of 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 the litigation process. Um, that said, prosecute the power to prosecute and the power to put people in jail is a unique power, a unique part of executive power and a very precious part of executive power. And bringing in somebody to be sort of an amateur prosecutor, um, I'm just very, very wary of. I think it raises questions that aren't normally raised when amicus, amici are, are appointed to defend an abandoned uh, government position. Um, so I am very wary of this. I'm particularly wary of Judge Sullivan picking retired Judge Gleason, who has been a, a, a live wire, not just in, in this matter, but in previous years. I tweeted out some examples um, ironically, when he was a sitting federal judge, he was lobbying the Obama Justice Department, the, U- the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn, led by um, future Attorney General Loretta Lynch, urging her to go easy on or abandon the prosecution, I can't remember the specifics, um, of people who were obviously guilty because Judge Gleason thought that the system had been unfair to them. Um, it's so ironic that Judge Gleason is now the one who is arguing that Flynn should not receive um, mercy from the Justice Department based on the the perceived injustices of this of this prosecution. And so I'm very wary of it. I'm very wary of the call for amicus briefs and turning this into almost some sort of public referendum on uh, the this. I really wish Justice Sullivan would just do his job as narrowly as possible, decide it under the governing standard. If you're going to bring in an amicus, bring in somebody much, much lower key, um, uh, somebody with much more direct experience in prosecution and keep this as low key as possible. Our friend Jack Goldsmith observed at the beginning of the Trump administration that one of the real dangers here in these fights over institutions is that President Trump's habit of anti-institutional rhetoric and anti-institutional tactics would actually spur his opponents to undermine their own institutions. And I kind of wonder if that's what Judge Sullivan is risking doing here if he blows up this case and takes on a role beyond 
the restrained role that we expect yeah. of judges. Now, I think there's actually reasonable agreement between the two of us at this point. I regard the Gleason appointment as a terrible mistake. I don't know whether you should point an amicus um, or a formal advocate. I think it's okay to take in other information, but I, I really think in the end the judge has to make it very clear that you know he's going to make this kind of decision on his own, and I don't have that. I am also worried about revenge prosecution coming in the opposite direction, sort of Democratic administration take over. Uh, my friend and Al Alshul for many, many years wrote article after article talking about the dangers of plea bargaining, all of which stem from the state's monopoly exercise of power in these prosecutorial cases. I think that's true with all administrations at all time. And I think what Jack Goldsmith did is about right, which is it's very difficult to get a set of formal constraints on prosecution uh, that control this. What you have to do is to rely on a set of comedy rules, institutional norms and practices which carry over across administrations. Trump has always been a cynic on those things, and I think the Democrats, as you said, are following after. So I think this thing is actually taken in general a turn for the worse. I also think that the criticisms that were made of the Justice Department were far far too vehement under the circumstances and basically showed a total contempt for the administration. And that's part of the problem of being anti-Dever ever, ever Trumpers. I mean, the, basically the attitude is if we haul off on this here and we get some damage, it doesn't matter what collateral damage happens. Our main job is to get this man and his party out of office. And that's a very bad way to uh, use the political system. So I think in the end, we've probably have resolved this thing to our mutual satisfaction. What was your next topic, anyhow? Well, let's move on to something very different. Let's get back to the COVID-19 outbreak and very specifically the, the, the debates happening right now about liability protection for companies. Um, and let's bracket the issue of liability of, of hospitals, healthcare workers, first responders, pharmaceutical companies. Those are all special cases. I just want to talk about the possible the worries of, of about about liability that are coming from small businesses that are now trying to reopen in various states. The idea that if I own a small hardware store um, and one of my customers um, thinks that he, he picked up a COVID-19 infection while shopping in my store, that he could bring a lawsuit against me. Or maybe more likely, uh, trial lawyers organizing class action lawsuits against companies like Starbucks or McDonald's or others as they start to bring customers back in. Um, there's a couple of aspects to this issue, right? One is, is does this need to be legislated on at all? Or can just can the courts just handle this by modifying um, tort law and negligence law? And then there's the usual question of federalism. Is this something that the federal government needs to deal with or the states? I'll just put my own cards on the table to start, Richard. Sure. I do think there's a live issue that needs le legislation. I think if the key is to get the sort of jumpstart the economy again and get it back on track, that we need ex-ante certainty, or, or at least more certainty than we currently have, rather than waiting for things to play out in individual cases. I think legislators need to really step in and define some sort of safe harbors for companies, both with respect to customers and employers. I think employees. The, employees. I think the key is to really define the safe harbor in terms of specific objective criteria: cleaning surfaces every certain number of hours, taking temperatures, knowing more about your employees' um, health situations, things like that. Um, I think so that specific to just 
define it in specific terms so that the employers know or the businesses know when, that they're in the safe harbor or not. Um, maybe ideally this would be at the state level. And, you know, Utah has has taken a lead on this issue, although their own reform was much vaguer. They just sort of tweaked negligence law a little bit. I wish they had been more specific. <sighs> but I don't think the states can handle this on their own because of the overlay of federal law that's going to make it so much more complicated. A lot of the measures we might want businesses to undertake to get into the safe harbor involving health information, maybe even age discrimination and deciding which employees can come back to work first. That is going to bump up against the whole overhang of federal regulation, which is probably going to need some sort of recalibration, at least for the short term, by the federal government. So that's my views on on sort of the, 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 the issues here. I will say a lot of my friends were surprised that I took this position. Um, their view, not a lot, but some of my friends responded and said, you know, Adam, we don't usually think of you as a big administrative state guy, but suddenly you are asking Congress to micromanage the, the, the operations of countless small businesses in the country. I mean, my response to that has been these businesses, as we've seen in polls from the National Federation of Independent Business and elsewhere, they're genuinely worried about this and they want certainty and that this is a good place for the government to help bring clarity and certainty and rebuild um, some trust um, that our economy needs to, 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 to operate on top of. But I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Well, I mean, there are many and various. Let me first start with a, an important question. The major actors in many of these cases are not small businesses, but they're government agencies. And so one of the questions you have to ask is the extent to which these government agencies are going to bear any liability of their own. If they were to bear very heavy liability, you could kind of see why we want to pose similar things on large and small companies alike. But Take what I regard as sort of an emerging and egregious scandal. It turns out back in late March, I think, of this year, uh, the Cuomo Health Commissioner and the organization uh, decreed that nursing homes had to take in patients discharged from hospitals, even if they had COVID. And one of the things that became very clear is that there were massive numbers of deaths in New York. Uh, the estimate is something well over 5,000 at this particular point before the regulation was removed moved uh, uh, sometime in mid-May, about 10 days ago. Now, if you were try to sue under either state or federal law, Governor Cuomo for this, there's something known as the discretionary function exception uh, to the Federal Torts Claims Act, which says you can sue for this kind of thing because it's the sort of thing on which you're calling people to make hard choices one way or the other. And the uh, discretionary function exception has always been very, very broadly construed in the uh, United States Supreme Court since a case called Dalhite decided in 1952, in which you get the benefit of this exception when you didn't know how to load a bunch of explosives onto a French ship, and it blew up half of Texas City Harbor, killing several hundred, I think, maybe a couple thousand people and money, money damages. And the Supreme Court said this is a discretionary function. If this were a private firm, it would be strict tort liability for ultra-hazardous activity. So now what happens is take the second case. I'm being a bit more concrete than you are. Uh, now you want to sue the nursery homes and these facilities. And they've taken these people in. They didn't have all the adequate protections and precautions. And are they going to be allowed to plead the defense that they didn't want to take these people in? Uh, the only reason that these people were here is because the governor and his health commissioner made 
made me do it. Is that or is that not a good defense? Well, I don't know the answer to that particular question uh, under current law. My view is, of course, is that it should be, I think, a good defense in this particular case because it's an impossible situation. But the argument is, well, you may have had to do that, but you should have been able to do this, that, and the other thing in addition. Well, then you are constantly bombarded uh, with various kinds of federal directives on how you operate this sort of system. And it turns out that compliance is very hard to come by. Uh, usually the orders from the states, because remember, they're doing most of this at this particular point, uh, are orders that are not accompanied by dollars in order to execute them. And sometimes they are put into place a set of regimes which may make absolutely no sense whatsoever. There's no evidence that I have that anybody in any health department uh, knows as much as somebody who's trying to actually run and operate a particular facility. Uh, so if you have these private businesses who are going to be essentially bullied about by public agencies that are virtually immune from liability, they are not only being asked to bear the liability for whatever misdeeds they make, they're being asked to bear the liabilities for whatever orders they put on. And so I do disagree with you on one thing. Which, as you said, uh, you would want to com basically uh, condition the liability or the exemption from liability on the fact that you've complied with certain sort of conditions. I think that's a serious mistake, Adam, and I'm talking about this as, a, as an old-time torts lawyer. Uh, what happens is it's not self-executing at that point. And so the next case comes in is, yes, uh, I was at XYZ Hardware Store. They had the following conditions that had to be satisfied, and it turned out they didn't satisfy them. Well, at that particular point, you then have to show that it made no difference that you satisfied them or didn't satisfy them, or do you have to figure out that it's good for some customers and not for other customers? What it does is it opens up the record in a way which essentially means that nobody's going to be able to get a summary judgment. Uh, so if you're going to go this particular route, you have to go further. Well, now, which way can you go? One of the things is you could try to have individualized waivers, um, notices and signs and things like that. Uh, the state of law that we have today, which I much deplore, is none of these things are worth anything today because you are always entitled to attack them on the grounds that the person who acceded to the waiver did not have full information of the risk that they were going to be exposed to. And so, therefore, the waivers are invalid. So the only way you could protect these people is through literally a statutory protection, and that's going to be subject to a constitutional challenge that it somehow or other deprives people of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. I think you want to get that thing litigated very fast to see that it goes. So given the current state, but my worry is I don't even think that there's a very easy way to give you the legislative immunity that you need, and you've got the Democrats in the plaintiff's bar out there, and what are they going to say? I guarantee you, first line is, did you see what happened at Schmoltz's hardware store in Delaware uh, last week? And you'll find an employer who's abused his employees or somebody who spat in the face of a customer. How could you possibly want absolute liability in cases of that sort? Uh, so I think the ability to get legislation on this, given the strength of the plaintiff's bar and the strength of the Democratic Party, some union interest on both ways, I guess, on this thing, I think it's, it's really very, very hard. I mean, uh, to me, I don't think there is a fix, which is what's so frightening about it. I think, in effect, there are palliatives that can be taken and steps that can be taken. My view about this on the liability, on the actual behavior side, is there was a nice little piece in the Wall Street Journal about why are you wearing masks? 
mask anyhow. Washing hands is much more important. And by the way, if you wear a mask, it doesn't do you any good. You're just going to reinfect yourself. And if you take it off to sneeze in order to cover your mouth with the tissue, you may just come in a second too late and the mask is not going to be any good anyhow. So, I mean, uh, are we going to say that if you wear a mask, uh, you may be protected. If you don't require a mask, you're going to be per se liable and so forth. I am very frightened by all of this stuff. I mean, I thought the reaction went much too far over uh, to begin with. Um, I think, by the way, to make it even worse is the way in which we now report deaths, whether they're COVID or not COVID deaths, has been completely uh, corrupted by the political elements on this. So I don't know what fraction of the 90,000 or so people who claim to be killed of COVID have in fact been killed by it, or indeed whether or not the number in some sense may be larger. It's really very, very there. So um, given the fact that we don't have any centralized control, if I were a judge, I would be pretty emphatic uh, that uh, the only thing I would allow would be liability for cases of extreme conscious, systematic, and willful negligence bordering on malice. It might be that's the best formulation that you could put forward. But an ordinary negligence system is useless because an ordinary negligence system never gets you a summary judgment. And when you started to talk about certainty, that's what you want. Because if you know the defendant's going to get a summary judgment, you don't bring the case. If you know it's a jury trial, uh, Epstein's law is, I don't care how bad your plaintiff's case is, it settles for 20 cents on the dollar. And that could be a million dollars a case. I mean, just just to get to the, the crux of the point, so I understand you, are you saying that, I mean, if we could take away the political ramification, like you said, there's the a lot of people on the Democratic side would oppose this legislation, even though McConnell and others are pushing very hard for it. Um, but let's let's take that out of the equation. It, it's an option. There is a let's assume that there could be legislation on this. Are you saying that the legislation, the problem is that it really is it's unenforceable? Um, I mean, if we could have a method that actually just relied on uh, record keeping and self-reporting by the, the, the entities, the, the businesses so, under penalty of perjury um, and Won't they do could it. just. Really, you still think you still think it's not worth it? I mean, it. I don't think people realize how incredibly inventive, imaginative, and talented the plaintiff's bar is. But does, but does, and, but does, no, well, let and, me just interrupt. Does, doesn't it? Isn't just re- reducing the sphere of uncertainty around this? Isn't that? In and of it, itself, a good thing? Look, I'm not saying it's not a good thing. What I'm saying is what you can do is if you want to create certainty, i.e. 1.0, it's yeah. not going to happen. If you're oh, trying sure. to improve things, it can happen. And so what I did in the end, as out of desperation more than conviction, is to sort of give the extreme gross negligence standard, allowing it. Now, it turns out that that has been tried in a number of other cases where we've gotten rid of um, absolute immunity. And given the fact that these are known risks and hazards that you're about, it turned out that historically, under the various statutes trying to sue for official immunity, uh, that this imperfect middle standard proved to be much too porous. And eventually the courts went back in a very haphazard way uh, to the more extreme absolute ban. I don't think you could get that politically. I think the stuff in the middle might work, but it's going to take a real sense of judicial conviction on this. You've got 50 states, lots of federal court judges two or three years before this thing starts to work itself out. And all of the particular people who have to go into business essentially have to make their decisions now. Uh, Their insurance companies have to make the question, just a simple question. Are you going to basically, in your next insurance policy, exempt from COVID-based risks? Um, Do you know the answer to that question? 
No. I don't. What? I mean, I, to me, the in, you know, for many, many years, I have the following very simple-minded view of tort liability, which I've pushed without success for 50 years, which is in stranger cases, you know, nuisance and trespass, you bump some innocent party on the head as he's walking down the street, strict liability subject to a narrow assumption of risk defense. But when they're cooperative activities between parties, uh, I think the uncertainty associated with litigation, uh, both in the expense, is from the ex-ante perspective, most liability rules are quite dangerous, and you should allow a strong assumption of risk defense. That second proposition has been uniformly rejected in this restatement of torts that we've had in most state courts. Uh, everybody starts talking about oppression and unequal market power. This developed in the 1960s in a variety of cases, and what happened is thereafter we started to have the huge run-up in medical malpractice and product liability cases starting around 1968. Um, I was very active in this, and I remember I worked for the insurance industry, American Insurance Association, in 1976, and they sit around the table, and they're absolutely overwhelmed by liability, and they looked at me at the ripe old age at that time of 33 and said, well, Professor, everybody in this room is counting on you to find us a solution. Uh, well, I have to tell you, I wasn't able to do that. Uh, the reason why we have managed to abate the malpractice and the product liability uh, situations has a little to do with liability. It probably peaked in 1983 and has been slightly less since then. But the real transformation, the real transformation is the reduction in, in accident rates, which are attributable to superior technologies, so that if you know, the failure rates you get are a tiny fraction of what they were even 30 or 40 years ago, uh, the liability issues, except for the holdovers on asbestos, which seem never to quite disappear, uh, the frequency of the cases is going to go down. And we don't have the benefit of low frequency of cases uh, when you start to talk with a COVID situation. Even figuring out whether somebody got COVID, by the way, is a real production. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my wife uh, called up and said, well, what do I do to find out whether I did or did not have this when I got sick? And, you know, they give you pre-screenings, they give you tests, the tests turn out to be unreliable, you may have to take them again. Um, it's a, a large and complicated story. Uh, one of the great mistakes we've made is to reconditioning opening on the ability to find the test, to find the vaccine, to find the cure. Uh, those things are going to take much longer to execute than anybody thought. And in my view, what we have to do is to start opening up pretty soon, pretty clear, and rely on the same mechanisms that we've always relied on to deal with these things in flu season, and even with some of these other pandemic flus, which is a combination of private responses on the one hand, institutional responses on the other. I don't believe uh, maybe I'm wrong, but that there's ever been any liability coming out of any flu epidemic. And, and I really think that if we have the liability coming here, it's going to compromise things terribly. I don't see an easy way out, given the way the discourse has gone in the last couple of weeks. Well, because we don't have a two-hour podcast, um, I'm not going to jump into the, the the debate on either masks, which you were alluding to earlier, or um, or the the issue about about tying reopening to to testing in some mm -hmm. ways. I'm just going to note my respectful dissent on those, um, and I am going to point out though that I'm glad you mentioned the insurance companies because in lieu of of, of ex ante legislation, I suspect the real legislators will be the insurance companies who will you know instruct their uh, their policyholders 
shareholders, the, the businesses on on what best practices are. And, and no, it, no, they'll exempt themselves for liability in COVID related cases. Yeah, well, then, then that's, and that, that's the risk. Yeah, well, yeah, but I, I think. And then they have to be forced to take them, and then you have yep. to set premiums, and you have to set the premiums by a regulatory policy, which nobody has in place. Well, no, I, I mean, think- this, this is, I mean, my problem about the tort system is I know of all of its defects, and I've basically railed against them as a law professor now since the 1970s, right? And what happens is they get magnified in a COVID type situation. Every inadequacy that you have is becomes much more important because you can't rely on technology to get you out of these problems. Yeah, I agree. Um, let's talk about two public figures before we go. One is Justin Amash, um, the the brief presidential candidate um, who considered running under the libertarian banner. Given that you are this podcast's uh, resident libertarian, uh, do, you, do you regret his departure from the race? Well, I mean, I have two situations. One is I, I don't know much about Mr. Mash, but I've read a couple of his statements, and I think they make much more sense than many of the similar statements coming out, either by Biden or by Trump. And so, you know, if I had a chance to probably pick somebody by name, you know, I might be inclined to pick him. I mean, after all, I'm the guy who wants Trump to resign, even though I don't want him to be defeated in an election or to lose to an impeachment trial. Uh, but the Libertarian Party, I mean, is really quite an extraordinary organization. And my guess was that they would not have him, even though he had a level of visibility that none of the candidates have. And I will just tell you one story about a friend of mine named John Hospers, who actually ran for president of the Libertarian Party. I think it was in 1972. He was a very distinguished philosopher from Brooklyn College. And then he comes out to USC, where I met him. And, you know, we kind of bonded a little bit. And a couple of years later, um, I run into him and I said, well, John, how's life in the Libertarian Party? And he looks at me and he says, I quit the party. I said, well, why did you quit the party? He says, because when we started the debate issues, uh, the only issue that these people wanted to debate was whether or not, since all taxes are theft, is the president, a libertarian, entitled to take a public salary? And he says, I can't conceive of why any particular party would want to debate that kind of issue. And what it is, it's the Anico trend coming forward. As you know, there's a large strand of um, libertarian thought which says that all taxes are theft. And if you start to take that seriously, you can't have any kind of government. The classical liberal, his attitude is we use flat taxes to control political abuses, and we could set them at a level needed to supply whatever revenues we have for essential public functions, the military, the the courts, the traffic lanes, whatever else we're trying to put out there and so forth. And so I'm not at all surprised to think that Amash may have just been beaten by that strong anarcho sentiment. And in terms of an election, I have no idea whether you've taken more people from Biden or more people from Trump or even that Biden is going to be the nominee under these circumstances. So I do think would add an additional element of confusion in there. Uh, but this is officially the crazy period in time. It's not at all clear whom he would take from. Mm-hmm. Indeed, nobody knows what's going to happen in the middle. I, I guess if I had to call the election now, given the instability, the mysterious nature of Mr. Biden's mental health and so forth, I would say it's kind of a neck and neck sort of race. I think the COVID situation, at least to date, has hurt uh, the president because of his erratic response 
responses, as seen by many. I think if it goes on much longer and the states are responsible for the lockdown, key places like Michigan may well go into his column because the resentments there are becoming very, very deep. I think it's an amazing level of uncertainty, and it's getting even higher as we're now basically within six months of the period day. So, I mean, uh, I just kind of chuckle a little bit about poor Mr. Maj. I think he managed to discover reality of the Libertarian Party the wrong way, and I am a libertarian, classical liberal in thought. I have never had the slightest interest in the political movement. And then one last public figure, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, as we're recording this, and again in mid-May, PBS has just uh, released the documentary, Clarence Thomas in his own words, an autobiographical documentary uh, directed, produced by the director, Michael Pack. I actually got to see a screening of this film, oh, about six months ago, um, right before it started to appear, I think, in theaters. Um, It's a beautiful movie. I, I highly recommend it. Um, I think, I suppose, of all the justices on the court, um, Justice Thomas might come the closest to your sort of ideal Supreme Court justice. Um, Maybe I'm wrong. But I'm curious, uh, if you had to describe what you think Justice Thomas's legacy on the court will be, it's hard to believe he's been on the court so long. What do you suppose it'll be? I think he'll be regarded as a very principled originalist. I mean, it turns out I think the reputation now is actually changing a little bit because of the new rules of etiquette under the Zoom protocols or the phone protocols they use. Mm-hmm. I gather he's starting to ask questions again. I'm going to be engaged in an oral argument on Zoom on Thursday, and it's on Zoom. I gather the Supreme Court arguments, they're on telephone which I find is really crazy. I think the Zoom format is much better. Uh, Having to talk into a void to a group of judges when you're trying to read their faces for clues normally is, I think, a mistake. And I gather what the chief justice does is he kind of imposes a seniority protocol. Mm -hmm. If that happens, isn't Justice Thomas first on the queue now? He is. It's it's actually a great thing, and I'd encourage our listeners to tune into a couple of oral arguments if they haven't already. Now, obviously, the Supreme Court has to deal with a problem that normal court of appeals panels don't have to. To just the sheer number of judges, nine Supreme Court justices versus a three-panel judge, a three-judge three panel on the Court of Appeals. But you're right, just Chief Justice Roberts manages the oral argument, sort of justice by justice. Everyone gets a turn, and Justice Thomas, who's always, uh, you know, famously avoided jumping into the fray of oral argument, now in this much more sort of justice by justice approach, he gets some really good questions in. I'm, I'm, I won't be sad to see the day of teleconference oral arguments go away um, in general, except that I will, I think, miss uh, hearing Justice Thomas ask the questions that perhaps he's he would have asked all along if the court's bench uh, weren't so chaotic. Yes, my view about it is that uh, I think there's now a two-minute rule in the Supreme Court in which you have to give somebody two minutes to talk yeah. uh, before anybody could ask a question. I think that's long overdue, and I think, if anything, two minutes is too short. Uh, but when you have nine people there, the lawyer becomes a common pool asset, and we're running to the risk of overfishing, right? Because that poor lawyer for either side can't get a word out of his mouth or her mouth before um, everybody descends upon him with what it is that's going on. I mean— uh, 
every time I think about preparing for oral argument, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is what zinger is going to come from left field by some judge who has some peculiar notion in his mind that I had never thought of or that my opponents have never thought of. I mean, I'm not an experienced oral advocate before a court, uh, but I, I think in a sense when one of the things that happens, it, it's a serious problem, is if you know that left field is where the game is going to be played and you don't know where left field is, that's the kind of problem. Uh, the level of preparation you have to make is much, much greater because you have no idea that you can actually keep to your own script when it comes to dealing with these sorts of cases. So I think, in effect, what I would recommend is that they keep some version of this non-chaotic operation even after they resume in-person hearings. Uh, the caliber of the argument may well be better, and I think that sometimes these snippy exchanges between the justices in many cases just uh, make the litigant somebody who's being shot from both sides. I'm, I think, in fact, Oral argument is a case where the judges don't have to hear each other talk. They can do that in conference. And so if you put somebody and you tell them you've got 30 minutes to argue and 20 minutes of the time you're hearing questions, um, there's something very wrong uh, about the way in which that particular system works. I think the Mossini should be given a chance to orate at some greater length. Well, Richard, I think our red light has gone off. Let's bring this episode to a close. Thanks to our listeners for joining us. Please join us again for the next episode of Reasonable Disagreements. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.